Well, hello, friends. Grace and peace of our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus, be with you. Welcome to Sermons from the Mount podcast. My name is Pastor Mark O'Neill. I currently serve as the pastor of Mount Olivet United Methodist Church in Manio, North Carolina. Each week, we will post here audio recordings of the sermons that I preach from that church. Hope this one is a blessing to you. God bless. Take care. text for this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew. It is the ninth chapter. We're going to take a look at verses 9 through 13. So again, this is Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. It says, As Jesus was walking along, He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. And as he sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he, Jesus, heard this, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. My friends, this is the word of God for you and I, the children of God. My friends, when I was in high school, my junior year, I was blessed to have an English teacher that wanted to expand our minds into things other than conjugating verbs or diagramming sentences or preparing essays or book reports. For one month that year, he wanted us to develop an appreciation for fine works of art particularly some of the more famous paintings that the world has ever known. And so each of us in that class was assigned a particular painting and an artist, and we're supposed to give a short, brief, in-class presentation on that work of art. And then at the end of the month, there would be a test where he would have a slideshow, and one by one he would put up a painting, and we would have to write down the name of that particular painting and the artist who created it. Now... Being the knuckleheads that we were, we decided to try and figure out a way to get the best grade possible with doing the least amount of work. (laughs) Now, this is the same group of guys that we discovered that shortcut during cross-country season that I told you about (laughs) a number of months ago. Anyway, same group of guys. So what we decided we would do is this. We would memorize which painting and artist each one of us had. And then when that slide was shown in class, the person responsible for that slide would cough (coughs) or would clear their throat (coughs) and then we would know what the right answer was. So that was our plan. Now, on the day of the test, the first slide goes up and it's The Starry Night by Vincent Van Gogh. I knew it by looking at it. 
So I wrote that down, and across the room I heard a buddy of mine cough, which at that was more confirmation than it was really giving me an answer. <laughs> then the Last Supper, uh, Leonardo da Vinci came up. Well, I knew that one. That's an easy one. And across the room, another buddy cleared his throat, but I didn't need it. And then we saw American Gothic by Grant Wood. Then we saw Whistler's Mother by James A. McNeil Whistler. We saw Nighthawks by Edward Hopper. Self-Portrait Without a Beard by Van Gogh. Washington Crossing the Delaware by Emanuel Lutzi. And on and on. What we discovered was that nobody needed to cough or clear their throat. Because even with our best efforts not to, we had learned them. Learned all of them. Except when we got to the last one. The last one was a Renaissance painting. You could tell by what the guys in the painting were wearing. And there's a painting of a bunch of guys on the left side sitting around a table. And on the right side was a guy pointing at that same table. The guys sitting around the table wearing these fancy Renaissance era outfits, the guy pointing and the guy with him was wearing a simple robe. The painting that we all missed is called The Calling of St. Matthew by the painter named Caravaggio. And it's the one that's on the back of your bulletin insert. Best I can remember, it was the only one I missed that day. Because much like a fisherman who will tell you about the one that got away, we tend to remember our mistakes more than our successes. So imagine my surprise this week when I'm going through my commentaries and this picture shows up. Now, of course, as soon as I saw it, I recognized it and I remembered it. But obviously it hit me a lot different this week than it did 30-some-odd years ago as a knuckle-headed teenager. It's a beautiful visual statement of the verses that you and I just read. And I reprinted it here because I want us to not just walk through the verses, but also talk about this painting and see if it may not unlock a few things for us and bring these scriptures to life. Because though they are only about four verses, they're important, as all scripture is, because it lays out for us what it means to be called and to change lives and lives of discipleship. Now, unlike some of the other disciples, honestly, friends, the New Testament doesn't tell us a whole lot about Matthew as an individual. I mean, except for this text and the parallels to it in the other Gospels, he's only mentioned in the lists of disciples in Mark 3.18, Luke 6.15, and Acts 1.13. And we know he was a tax collector, and we're told in other places that he also went by the name Levi. But that's it. That's all we know about Matthew. But from these three verses, four verses, there are three things we can learn about what it means to be called into a life of discipleship. The first is it starts with a call. Follow me is what Jesus says to Matthew. Without backdrop or setting or details about Matthew's family or his history, the text tells us Jesus simply saw him and called to him. And Matthew's response here is equally bare bones. Without commentary or elaboration or details about what it meant for his professional or social life, the text simply tells us, and he rose and followed him. Now, as you consider this call of Matthew, 
Take a minute and look at this painting. Because the scene pictures Matthew together with all of his fellow money counters. And he's wearing all of the finery of a 16th century Italian somebody. Because it's being painted by a 16th century Italian. He's wearing silk stockings. He's got on a jaunty hat. He's got a sword by his side. His buddy to the left of him, uh, yeah, left of him is wearing a feathered cap on his head. That signified fancy back in those days. If he were to be painted now, Matthew would be wearing an Armani suit and wearing a Rolex, maybe Gucci leather or alligator shoes on his feet. Basically, he'd be Ric Flair. If he were painting him, he'd be Ric Flair this morning. And he's surrounded by a whole bunch of others who, like him, seem to be caught up in the superficialities of the high life. And the table they sit at is piled high with the money that Matthew had extorted from his neighbors and fellow citizens. And yet, Jesus stands with his eyes fixed on the future evangelist. His finger points towards Matthew to signal him out as one who has been specifically chosen. Matthew's not too sure, is he? He's the guy in the beard in the middle. He's pointing to himself with one hand as if to ask Jesus, are you sure you got the right guy? <laughs> Almost incredulous, isn't he? You're calling me? Yes. Friends, what Matthew was finding out here is what I hope all of us have come or will come to realize, that just as the world comes into being through the sheer act of grace, so does our spiritual life. So does our called life. So do our invitations to a life lived with Christ. They come not from the worthiness of the one who receives it, but from the pure generosity of the one who gives it. Let me say that again. Our calling into a life of Christ does not come from our worthiness to receive it. It comes from the pure generosity of the one who gives it. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, 4, that God desires everyone to be saved. God desires everyone to be saved, even those who, like Matthew, find themselves deeply rooted in a life that is opposite to the divine will. Friends, our life with Christ cannot be thought of as a game of meriting and deserving or achieving and rewarding, it must be thought of as a grace joyfully received. So what about you? Do you hear Jesus calling to you? Do you see him pointing to you, beckoning you to follow? Because it will look different for all of us. One of my commentaries says this. He says, now what for us is that creative and beckoning hand of Jesus? What does it look like? It might be that nagging sense of dissatisfaction, even when we are surrounded with all the things we thought would make us happy. It might be the voice of a child saying, as a steeple looms into view through the car window, why don't we go to church? It might be that strange and delicious tug we feel in the presence of holy things or holy people. It might be that line from Scripture that, in an instant, rearranges the furniture in our mind. 
It might be the experience of hitting bottom, a humiliation so profound that our illusions of self-reliance permanently vanish. Jesus can call us in many ways. In the painting, though his hand and face are arrestingly visible, Jesus is, for the most part, obscured by the body of Peter, who lurches in front of him, interposing himself, as it were, between Christ and the viewer. Look at it in your painting. Jesus is on the far right. He's pointing. Peter is in front of him. All right? Now, according to standard iconography, Peter, the rock, is symbolic of the church. And so what the painter here is suggesting is that it is primarily through the church, through the liturgy, through Holy Communion, through proclamation of the word, through exhortations to a moral excellence, to the lives of the saints that have gone on before us. It is through the church that we experience the call of Jesus to conversion and to discipleship. Friends, the fact that you're here this morning or watching means that you better get ready. Because Jesus is going to call you if he hasn't already. But when he does, we have to recognize that that call is going to present us with a choice. Because look at Matthew's other hand. It's still on the money. One hand is pointing to himself of this to say, do you really mean me? But the other hand is all over that money that he's taken from his friends and neighbors. This is a moment of separation. He can only serve one master. Which makes you think maybe he was talking about himself back in chapter 6, verse 24. Now we all know what happened because the text told us what happened, but I think this painting reminds us that the life of discipleship sometimes means separation from something that we used to think was very important to us. Jesus tells Matthew, follow me. The call of Jesus addresses the mind, to be sure, but is meant to move through the mind into the body and through the body into our entire lives. Every facet of it, every decision we make, every move we make. This follow me language that Jesus is using is the same as saying, apprentice to me, or walk as I walk, think as I think, choose as I choose, see as I see. You see, discipleship entails an entire rework of the self according to the pattern and manner of Jesus. That means we have to let go or be separated from whatever it is that is preventing us from loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and making Jesus Lord over all aspects of our lives. So again, friends, what about you? Is some separation in order? Jesus calls us directly, yes, and he calls us specifically, and he specifically chooses you. Everybody in here, watching online, Jesus chooses you. And I get to proclaim that good news each and every Sunday that you and I are together. But a call, friends, also may involve some separation from something you think is important. 
So it started with a call and it continued with dinner. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us a whole lot about how this dinner came about. But shortly after calling Matthew, Jesus comes to his house to eat. And it's evidently not a small party. Because it tells us there's other tax collectors and sinners there. And the disciples were there. And the Pharisees were there. So it would seem to me the first thing Jesus does once he calls a sinner to conversion is what? Invite you to a party. The creator of the universe, the uncaused cause of all there is and ever will be, is ready, willing, and able to celebrate with us. He is nothing but love all the way through. So the party, friends, is always on. We just have to accept the invitation. And yet so many refuse it and miss out on all the fun of being a changed disciple of the Most High God. Now, the attendance at this dinner, I think, is worth noting because while Jesus' call separated Matthew from his vocation as tax collector, it did not separate him from his co-workers, did it? They're there with him. Whoever invited them to dinner, Matthew prepared for them, welcomed them, and served them. And I don't think this is a minor matter for us just to gloss over. Because you see, friends, to follow Jesus does not mean abandoning everyone in our life. Instead, it involves bringing them into an encounter with Jesus as well. Now, we don't know what this encounter did for the other tax collectors and sinners, but I tell you what, it ain't too hard to imagine that the one who called Matthew probably had a few words for them other dudes <laughs> at the dinner. Started with a call, continued with dinner, and then continues with a testimony that matters. Now again, after this brief reading, we don't know what happened with Matthew, but it does not diminish the efficacy of his testimony. In fact, I think what it does, it highlights for us that when all is said and done, it's a disciple's testimony about Jesus, whether it be words or actions, that can have some of the greatest impact in our world. Because remember, Matthew was telling these stories about his encounter with Jesus before he ever wrote them down. They were oral before they were written. In fact, one of the early church fathers, St. John Chrysostom, said that the reason why Matthew wrote these down is because people wanted to preserve it. Hey man, write all this stuff down that you've been telling us because we don't want to lose any of it. And what it tells me is that it is our testimony, it is our words, it is our actions, that is sufficient enough to strengthen faith among those who hear our words and see our actions. And that's what it means for disciples to live and love by word of mouth and faithful actions. And we have to decide, friends, if our testimony of what we say, what we do, and what we think is having the kind of impact on this world that we want it to. One of the ministries I was involved in during our time in Camden that I'm most proud of when we partnered with the County Board of Commissioners and the Board of Education and we got access to the middle school gym on Saturday nights. From 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. we brought a bag of basketballs and we just throwed them out. And anybody that wanted to come could come and play basketball for a couple of hours. We had a table set up with Bibles and devotions and stuff that we didn't really run out, but it was there in case they wanted to, to give them. And while the intent was to serve the youth and young people of Camden County, what we soon discovered was we had 15, 20, 25 guys from Elizabeth City that showed up each and every week. Now, most of these guys were ones that we would unfortunately 
and stereotypically say looked like trouble. Some had criminal records. Some had tempers that had to be cooled down every now and then. Some constantly had a scowl on their face. But they were always respectful. And the more they came out, the more I developed a fondness for all of them. There was one that was always the first and the last to leave, and his nickname was Quay. And there was a period of three or four weeks where Quay didn't show up. And so I asked one of the guys, I said, hey, what happened to Quay? Well, Quay had been arrested. And because Quay was a repeat offender, and the incident contained not just possession of narcotics, but also a weapon, Quay won't go meet with us anytime soon. Now, I'm a law and order guy. Do the crime, you do the time, right? But I kept having this gnawing, nagging feeling that I needed to reach out to him. That I needed to contact him. And I wrestled with it for a few days. And so I wrote him a letter and sent it to the Albemarle Jail. And a couple weeks later, I got a letter back from him. And it was a letter from a guy who was humbled, that took responsibility for his own actions, and wanted to be a better man. And he also said in the letter that I was the only person that had reached out to him so far, but that he knew that I would. He also asked if I would come visit. Now, at the time, when you go to visit someone at the Albemarle Jail, it may still be that way, you sat in front of a television screen, and there's a phone beside it. And the person you're there to visit would be sitting in front of a television screen on his side. And that's how we would see each other and communicate. We had about a 15-minute conversation because all that was loud. But part of that conversation was I asked him, I said, you wrote that you knew I was going to contact you. How did you know that? He said, because you came to the gym every Saturday night. And you could have been anywhere else. And you hung out with us. And you let us be us. You didn't get too mad when we cussed. But you were present with us. Never preached a word to them. Was just present. Now, fast forward a couple of weeks. And at the end of one of our open gym nights, one of the fellows came up to me, a guy who had not said maybe two words to me the entire year and a half, two years that we had been doing it. Always had a constant scowl on his face. I was putting Bibles into the box to take them back to the church, and he came up. And he picked one of them up. And he started running his fingers on the cover of it. And he could tell that his mind was working. He was getting ready to say something. And he opened the Bible, he started flipping through some of the pages. And without looking up, he said, you went to go see Quay? And I said, yeah. And then he paused for a moment, and he closed the Bible. And he looked at me. He said, cool. He said, can I have this? I've never had one. I nodded my head and he walked off 
continuing to flip through the pages of what was now his first Bible. Now, I don't know what ended up happening with him or with Quay. This was right before COVID, and once restrictions were lifted, the school wouldn't let us back in. So I don't know what happened to any of them. But what I do know is that that night, that guy wanted a Bible. Not because he had heard some great sermon preached. Not because he was in some tremendous Bible study. But because somebody was simply present. It made them dudes feel like they were cared for. And the Holy Spirit grabbed him and put a Bible in his hand. My friend, Jesus is going to call you. Jesus will invite you into a relationship with him and a whole new life. And all you have to do is to accept that invitation. And I guarantee you one thing. Once you let go and let God, as they say, not only will you find yourself transformed, but you will be a change agent for everybody around you. It starts with a call, friends. So let it start now. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, I hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Until next time, God bless. Take care.